Hi, Anne. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I have to confess, uh, I'm a little, I'm, I'm a bit excited for this interview, and I'm a little nervous as well. Uh, also, uh, I want to apologize if some of the questions seem a little naive or uh, a little stupid. Uh, but uh, yeah. Um, so with that disclaimer, uh, I want to start off with. Uh, I was going through some of the, uh, you know, videos uh, in polling, and you know, uh, how does it work, etc. Um, and you know, and some of the top results on YouTube was. Uh, there, there was a lot of talk about you know distrust in polling and you know why polls uh, are not to be trusted and you know um, there's general feeling of a uh, distrust uh, why do you think that is okay. and um, uh, what can we do about it per se <laughs> well first of all there are a lot of polling firms that are out there it used to be that there might be a couple of dozen that were the mainline polling firms and then uh, people started getting into the the business and sometimes wanting to compete on the basis of price and so creating new methodologies that could be uh, very fast and very inexpensive but sacrificing kind of the basis in science and so with this proliferation of polls when you've got I don't know 538 rated over 350 polling firms and that's just the firms that were that were polling in the final run-up to elections um, there are other firms that are out there i think it's very difficult for the general public to have any idea of what polls to trust or not trust and the idea that you could just average everything out and get some some sort of truth um, again that just defies algebra um, <laughs> so um, I think that that's the reason that there's so many polls, methodologies aren't consistent, and in, in interfering with everything are, are polls that are not designed in a way that would lead you to get an accurate result. Um, just to stay on this, uh, I mean, um, uh, I think in the like one of the I think one of the poor examples is I think 20, uh, the 2016 elections. I think a lot of people are surprised that Donald Trump ended up winning the uh, elections. Um, on that on that specific election cycle, uh, why do you think that, you know, most of the pollsters got it wrong in that particular case? Um, yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. Uh, in 2016, most of the polls were showing Hillary Clinton winning the popular vote, and she did win the popular vote. And most of the polls were saying about two to three percentage points, my poll, uh, my national poll said that, but that's not how we elect presidents. So where pollsters got it wrong were in three key states. It was in Michigan, it was in Pennsylvania, and it was in Wisconsin. And the margins were brutally narrow in those states. And there was a, there was a dearth of polling there. Um, and the reason there was a dearth of polling there is that nobody thought that those states could swing for a Republican candidate. And that assumption led them not to poll, so they weren't able to get actual data that would show them that there had been change there. And in fact, Clinton's own campaign had decided to forego a lot of traditional polling and work mostly on analytics, that is, existing data that then they could model. Well, what was that existing data about? It was about the 2012 election. So they were working on data and figuring out a way to get that, but that was a past election. So there's a fair amount of, of polling methodology that leads people to be predicting backwards. Um, and that, that's, a, that's a fatal flaw 
when there is change. And social scientists say the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And the Selzer caveat is until there's change, in which case you can be blinded from the change that, that is happening. And that's what happened. You didn't have enough polling to show in those three key states that there was change. Um, I do want to get into a little bit of your metho- methodology as well, but uh, I think in one of the interviews that uh, that I uh, so I, I I think had watched uh, you describe your methodology as, uh, we, uh, as I think if I get it wrong uh, if I if I if I got it correctly as polling mm-hmm. forward if I if I got that right uh, can you uh, can you yes. explain to us like what is what, what do you mean by that and uh, yeah. Huh. So, so what I just described for you was a was polling backwards. That is using w- and waiting data to look like a past election, with the idea that that will help you accurately predict a future election. I, my method uh, let it sort of prevents me from getting in the way of what the future is is showing me. So I I do not put anything in any uh, protocol that is based on past data. Um, and and I don't know if this is the time to kind of, and how deep you want me to go into my methodology um, and sort of how I came to be there. So this might be a long answer, so st- interrupt me at will. Sure. Um, but but what, what we know is, we don't know what the future electorate looks like. What we know is what the general population looks like. So we poll a general population sample and then we weight that to known population parameters, and then we pull out of that people who are likely to vote. So if women are more likely to vote, they will be more plentiful in our subgroup of likely voters. And if older people are more likely, they will be more plentiful. And then that will all take care of itself. I'm not gonna make any assumption that women will be more likely to vote. My data will show me if in fact that is the case. And the, the second, do you want to ask me something or I can no, tell no, you how no. I came to hold that view? <laughs> no, no, please, please go ahead. Yeah. So the, the, the key moment in time where uh, I just became hard as a rock on pulling forward that way was in the Iowa caucuses of 2008. And our final poll said that on the Democratic side, uh, something like 60% of the people who were going to show up, it would be their first caucus. And that is a jaw-dropping finding. That is a number that pollsters and editors, who were my clients, and reporters alike to say, how is that possible? We've never seen anything like that. That's right, in the past. Um, and we, you know, we played with it. We we messed around a bit. We sort of said, "Well, what if it's what if we're wrong? What does that do?" And we we ended up at the end of a day full of of trying to figure out if this was a good thing or a bad thing to publish. Uh, we're saying, "Look, the data is strong. The data are robust, and we will publish it." And there there was a great deal of crankiness on the from the campaigns of her, Hillary Clinton's first run. And John Edwards, who at that time was a, a contender, uh, because we were showing Barack Obama winning, and w- winning comfortably, and so they immediately, as soon as the poll came out, were were saying she's making assumptions, she has decided 
this and nobody else would decide this. And I, I was asked on, on national television, how did you decide this? Why did you decide this? And I said, I didn't decide anything. My data showed me. And on caucus night, the entrance poll showed that about 58% of the people who were caucusing on the Democratic side, it was their first caucus. And the, the little footnote to that was that one of Hillary Clinton's state chairs, a friend of mine, we've, we've done some business in the past on other kinds of issues, called me to say, I have always trusted your polls until now, but I personally have knocked on 99 doors and I don't find this lurking Obama support. And I said, well, you know, tell me about your data. Tell me about these doors. And, oh, well, we're contacting previous caucus goers and registered independent, uh, re registered, yeah, registered uh, Democrats. So they had a very narrow view. They decided that their best efforts and their resources would be best spent on people who would be, had, had caucused before. And because that's what they focused on, they were blind to what else was going on across the caucus going public generally. So it said to me, make no assumptions. You know, I say, keep your dirty fingers off your data. Do, you know, do not restrict who it is that you're talking to based on anything because your data can show you that this is what's coming. And the, the Clinton campaign at that point, and again in 2016, they repeated the mistake. They had blinders on and couldn't see the freight train of change that was headed right for them. Um, so um, so there, there are two things. Uh, so one, uh, from your previous answer, I, 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 can, I can get the sense that data is very important to you. I think you hold data as very sacred. Um, but also there is this, uh, you also brought up methodology. Um, do you, I mean, uh, do you think data and, I mean, do you think, data and methodology play an equal part uh, uh, in the answer to polling? Or do you have, I mean, without good, um, do, without, uh, what I'm trying to understand is, do you have, do you have a preference to over methodology or data? Or do you think both are, uh, you know, uh, very important in that sense? Well, I'm, I might not understand your question. You know, you, you put a methodology in place to gather data. So your data is a product of your methodology that's there. So I might not understand your question as to which would be more important. They're inextricably linked. Right. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, so, um, so in that case, um, I mean, um, so uh, what do you, what would you do uh, when you get, I mean, you have predicted multiple uh, bases accurately, uh, but some of the, uh, some of the times you have also gone wrong. Uh, I mean, I think uh, yeah. the case that I, I think I uh, uh, read was when uh, I think you had predicted in 2004, uh, John Kerry to win the Iowa caucus mm -hmm. and then uh, in actuality, uh, George W. Bush. Uh, so what I'm trying to understand is, um, so when you have that moment of where, you know, you have your data and you have your methodology and it still doesn't work out, you still get it, uh, you know, uh, it yeah. doesn't turn out to be true. Uh, how, how do you respond yeah. to that? You know, how do you go back? Yeah. Uh, what modifications do you make? Um, well, it was a very uncomfortable time. Um, I had sat uh, at lunch with somebody who had access to the network's uh, exit polling data before it had been aired. And they said, not only is John Kerry going to win, he's going to win by a larger margin than you think. And that was based on somebody else's data. So I kind of felt okay 
<laughs> until it all fell apart. Um, the what happened to and it took a while for this to calm me down. Uh, but I that week was starting a project for a local medical school, and the pr then president of that medical school was former uh, Republican Governor Terry Branstad. And I don't know if your your listeners will know that name, but he was almost governor for life and, and was uh, known as the kind of guy who knew where every vote was. And and by accident, he saw me in a conference room at Duane University and came in and spent a half an hour with me and a map of Iowa and told me how I couldn't have gotten this right because the plan in that election on the Bush, George W. Bush campaign was to not try to expand the base at all, but to get more of their base to show up. And in the final weekend before the election, there was a giant rally that was closed to the press. So people who weren't inside the tent did not know what was happening there. And Governor Branstad said he's never seen a campaign event like that in terms of the, the charge that every person there was given to go find 10 more votes or 12 more votes to go and bring out the people that they know and get them to the polls and it was in fact the western side of iowa that that was responsible for Kerry's loss in iowa and governor branster said not only that but that's how tom daschle who was the then senator from south dakota that's how he got ousted from his seat. So he said, there are things that ha you, you have to stop polling at some point and things continue to happen <laughs> that are beyond what you're able to measure. There's change up to the very, very end. So I, I, I became a little bit more at peace. It took a couple of years to, to really kind of get over that, you know, sinking feeling. Um, but the polling, it really is there to try to tell the story of what's happening. And just being able to say a race is closing, sometimes that's the only story that you can say with any confidence. And, and we can go way back into polling uh, history and find many of those where the best you can do is just say, this is going to be very close. Um, so, um... When you uh, you spoke about uh, you know we we discussed about uh, data and methodology, uh, I just want to get uh, if you can give us a little uh, example of uh, when we when you say data, um, like when you approach an election cycle or when you approach uh, you know um, some kind of prediction, uh, what are the steps that you take? I mean, what does this data collection look like? So one of the things that I think uh, you do uh, uh, you know base it on is questionnaires, uh, and I'm trying to understand you know do you have separate do you have different questionnaires for every election cycle? Or you know what kind of data are we talking about? Like, in uh, is it is it a combination of questionnaires plus do you make phone calls? Uh, could you give us a little taste on how you go about this data gathering? Yeah, 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 I can. So when we're approached to to do something in a geography that we've not been in before, we spend a lot of time with census data and taking a look at what we can, how we can define the population by some key indicators that we know affect vote just so that we can get a good cross-section of the population. So we look at age by sex, we look at race, where in, in areas where that plays a factor, and we look at education. And we do a lot of spreadsheet work um, to really delineate and, and the geography of the state as well. 
Um, so we're getting steeped in what we know about the way things, uh, the, the lay of the land in, in a state, let's say. The actual questionnaire development, we do that in consultation with our clients, um, but there are some key questions which are, are about the vote, which have been asked since the, the dawn of polling back in the 1930s, 40s, so, so very much a part of that. And we have been successful in using very basic questions of, of how likely are you to vote, and we offer you are you will you definitely vote probably vote might or might not vote or probably not vote and we define as a likely voter only those who give the strongest response definitely vote and we've we've had some people say but no you know the probable votes some of them will vote and i said yes that's right and some of the definites will not vote it's not perfect but we have found that when we see other pollsters factor in a whole lot of other things like, have you voted before? Do you know where your polling place is? How actively are you following the election? How interested are you? How much does it matter for you? And then they will combine all of that to say, well, these are the most likely voters. Well, you heard in that litany some questions that would speak to their past behavior and again you're going to know i'm going to think i don't don't get too confident about their past behavior we also saw in 2012 with the obama campaign who spent upwards close to if not crossing into the bill a billion dollars on the campaign money was was not a barrier to what their campaign tactics. And so they had a whole strategic plan of everybody. You identify them as a potential Obama voter. You got calls on a regular basis. And at some point, they're asking you to apply for an absentee ballot. They're, and they're working you through that system. And once they've confirmed that you've, in fact, sent in your absentee ballot, then they start talking to you about who else you can bring to the polls to get them to vote. So whether you have voted in the past or not becomes far less meaningful because there's so much opportunity for people to reach out to people who've not voted before and encourage them and help them get a ride or whatever it is that, that is needed. So it's not like the electorate is sitting all alone <laughs> and that left to their own devices on whether they will vote or not. Somebody's going to show them where the polling place is, and they might even drive them there to get there. So this idea that you need the most intense voters reflected, that's a bias that you're introducing into your data, and I would say needlessly. Uh, uh, I want to move on. Uh, I, wanna do, I, I do want to get into uh, other kinds of polling as well, uh, which are non-political. Uh, but before that, and I think I should have asked this uh, earlier on. Um, so can you tell sure. us uh, why does, uh, uh, I mean, why does, uh, why does polling matter in the first place? And I think in mm -hmm. relation to this question, also, uh, I think you had uh, given a talk, which I would encourage anyone listening to. Uh, I think it's called uh, uh, Polling and Democracy. Uh, so how does, uh, you know, polling, uh, uh, how does polling affect democracy? Or is it, does it affect democracy or is it just a reflection of, uh, you know, what's going to happen per se? Uh, yeah. Well, I, I, think, I think of polling as, as a way for ordinary people to participate in the democracy. And, and 
I guess I would say two things about it. First, imagine a campaign where there is no polling and you have no idea who's even viable as a candidate and who in fact is, is in a runaway uh, election. If you don't have polling to say what's happening, how do you make sense? How, if you're a news organization, a lot of my clients are, how do you begin to allocate your resources in covering the campaign if you don't have an idea of what's happening there? The second thing is polls, whether you like them or don't, are that there are elected officials and candidates for office who pay attention. So this is a, a, a voice of the people, if they're properly done, it's a cross-section of the electorate. And this is a way, whether it's about who they're going to vote for or where it is that they stand on issues, that can be a mirror of what's going on in a state or in a congressional district or even in the nation, that the people who are in charge of these issues, and people who are vying for office, can get a, a good read on where the public stands. And how else would you be able to do that? Mm -hmm. um... So, uh, I mean, you've been polling for, I think, close to uh, three decades now. Um, I mean, and I think you're mostly popular for, uh, uh, you're definitely popular for your political polling. But uh, what kind of other polling are you, uh, you, do you engage in? And uh, can you tell us uh, where, uh, you know, uh, polls obviously are very famous during election cycles. But uh, what other kinds of polling, which, uh, you know, an average person may not be aware of, but uh, is rigorously done? Yeah. Do you have any examples of that? Yeah. Yeah, my, my background is in communication research. Um, and so I am approached by obviously things that are related to what voters think. So advocacy organizations who are interested in what the public thinks about their stand uh, on issues. But there are also commercial applications. So I might work for a bank and help them understand sort of what's happening with their customer base. I worked for a medium-sized supermarket chain and help them understand their market position compared to their competition and and in collaboration with some focus group work um, but it's nice to have quantitative data that you can say look this is what's happening here's where you are here's what you might be losing um, here are your assets here are your vulnerabilities um, I will say that the, this project I did for Des Moines University, for example, uh, they came to me and said, hey, we're going to do a public relations effort. And so we just need to know our visibility in the market. Can you do that? And I said, well, sure. You want to know where the needle is? And they said, yes. I said, well, that's great. We can do more because wouldn't it be helpful to not just know what your visibility is, but to know what your perceived assets are so that when you move the needle, you can be moving it in a positive direction. You can be enhancing the image. You can be taking your best shot uh, at, at not just increasing your profile in the public, but increasing it in a positive way. And so we put together uh, questionnaires and, and it was uh, one of the most successful projects we've done. That was a very long time ago, but it still resonates in my mind um, that you can start with something simple, but you can very easily with good technique and, and good questioning strategy, deliver something to my client, Des Moines University, that they would never have been able to figure out on their own. And um, we're able to go out and raise a lot of money and be successful. Right. Um, 
So uh, another thing uh, is, uh, since you've been doing this for so long, I was just curious about, uh, um, has the has your methodology been um, been the same for, you know, uh, I, I mean, have has it been consistent over the years or has there been, um, I mean, has there been a large, uh, you know, change in the way you approach, uh, approach polling and approach your, uh, the way you conduct uh, your, you know, your research or your methodology, et cetera. But also mm-hmm. uh, in relation to that, uh, obviously there has been a lot of technological advancement over the past, uh, over the past 30 years since you've been, since you initially started polling. Uh, can you tell us, uh, uh, do you use, uh, how has technology impacted uh, the way you do yeah. your research and how, how, how does that, how does it play a role in the way you do things? Right. Well, yes, I have been polling since the dawn of civilization. And uh, when I was first it, it, on the staff of the Des Moines Register and we had our own research department, we had our own polling unit inside the newspaper, which is unheard of today, that we would draw our own sample of phone numbers by having a complete collection of every phone book in the state of Iowa and then lining them all up and take a random start point and then drawing every nth number out of that entire group of phone books. And then once we had that, because some people have unlisted numbers, we would drop the last two digits and put random digits in. And that technique had been invented by actually a friend of mine, that, and it was a breakthrough methodology. But in those days, this is the, your, your younger listeners won't be able to recognize this world. If we knew your phone number, we pretty much knew where you lived with a, with a fair amount of precision. So you had an area code and that would put you in a part of the state. And then you had a prefix and that those were assigned um, on a geographic basis. So things began to cloud the issue and people got more phone lines. They got a teen line. They got a fax line. They started getting answering machines and people could have caller ID and they could screen their calls. And all of all of the technological developments were designed to thwart polling and we had to overcome all of those things. Um, I think the, the, the tsunami of a change happened after 2008 and re- there was a big recession, as you might remember, and people started cutting their household expenses and landlines started disappearing and, and people would be cell phone only. And until that time, so previous to the 2008 election, and the Pew Research Center, which is a national treasure, had data that said, look, if you leave out cell phones, you're going to still be accurate so long as you get the age distribution correct. And so it wasn't until after people started, you know, ripping their landlines out of the wall and throwing them in the garbage um, that we suddenly had to take into account cell phones. And cell phones bring a lot of, uh, in a way, ease because you can reach people um, kind of all the time. They don't have to be at home, which landline phones, that polling could only happen if the respondent were at home and had the time available. Um, the difficulty, and, and this is just really starting to be an interference and, and the industry is working on ways to overcome it. The, the big change was the decision that cell phone numbers could be portable. And then it really any phone number could be portable, that there was no longer a geographic tie. 
So there are people in Iowa who have a California area code. So taking a number out of the phone book and dropping the last two digits, you're not going to catch them. And in states like California, in Iowa, the in-migration isn't so great that it will still take a while for that to catch up. But in states like Colorado, in states like Florida, you can miss big segments of the population if you don't have a way of including in your sample phone numbers from area codes assigned to different states. So in terms of what we did, we obviously started uh, including cell phones in, our, in the way that we were sampling. Um, and we are lately figuring out how to include numbers that are um, being in, that are in use in a state that doesn't match their area code. It, I know I'm getting kind of technical, but that's the business is figuring out, well, here's the problem. How do we overcome it? Um, so um, you started your firm in 95, you know, please stop me if I'm wrong, but uh, I think you started your firm in 96. Um, I'm just curious. About I'd had the- a firm before. I'd had a firm before that, so that that firm dissolved. I started my own business, in 1989. I left the Des Moines Register to devote my time to it full time in 1992. Oh, okay. I'm so, so sorry. Yeah. Any of those dates are still ancient history, so it doesn't really matter. Um, so uh, I'm just curious about the team that you employ. Like, I mean, um, is it a big team, and you know, uh, some team dynamics? Maybe if you can share, I don't know. I'm not sure I understand. What is the game I'm playing? Tell me, what did I, what, say I mean, your question. The, the team that you employ, I mean, how many people are, you know, how oh, many people are involved? Yeah. If you yeah. can share. Uh, my, oh, sure. I can, I can easily share. My firm is small but mighty. So including me, there are two of us. So it's myself and I have a, a, an exceptionally able assistant. We have a phone bank we work with on a contract basis um, but we do everything else and we and we pr- work with a, f- a firm that provides sampling so they're part of our team if you will um, but they are not on my staff what what I decided I wanted to do was really specialize in the think work and so managing large staffs of people it takes your mind off the actual product that we're delivering to clients and I like being involved with the actual product um what kind of uh, so i mean th- this is a twofold question i mean uh, so how uh, so first one is like how good at math uh, since you spoke about you know spreadsheets and you know analyzing data so first of all like how good at math do you have to be to be uh, in this business second of all which is relation to that is uh, what kind of skills do you uh, does a person need to possess to be in this business i mean yeah yeah well, I'm uh, unusual in that my uh, doctoral work had a heavy uh, statistics basis to it. It also had a heavy theoretical basis. So it's a communication theory and research. Um, you know, I think everybody ought to have a good foundation in math. You ought to be, first of all, not afraid to look at a page of numbers, but you also can train your eye so that that, that you can see how numbers go together or when they're not going together. 
Um, and I, I make the analogy when I was a senior in college, I took an art history class because I was going to spend a year in Europe and I thought maybe I should know what I'm looking at. And the first day the professor said, now on the final exam, I will show you pieces of art you've not seen before and you will tell me a, an approximate date and you will tell me the artist and you will tell me the period, the style. And if you know the date, you pretty much can know the style. But you know, I held up my hand and said, how can we be expected to do that with a piece of art we've never seen before? And he said, your eye will tell you. I guess, and I doubted him. But on the final exam, you see this and you go, oh, well, and it's and it's and it's right hemisphere. It's a, it's an intuitive thing, but it's been trained by your left hemisphere. So I look at a page of numbers and I can go, there's something not right here. And I get out my calculator <laughs> and I start seeing because you I've looked at so many numbers that needed to add up to 100 percent that even though I'm not adding them, I'm not using my left hemisphere to add them all up in my head. I have a sense, I have a pattern recognition sense that there's something not right there. And I think that's a good skill for everybody to have. If you're looking at your bank account, if you're looking at your company budget, you ought to have a sense of how those numbers come together. Now, have I taken classes in advanced multivariate statistics? Yes. Do I use them? No. And, and the reason that I don't use them is that they're very difficult to communicate to clients because they've not taken advanced classes in multivariate statistics and they couldn't tell you that what a beta weight was going to do for you or against you. Um, but also there's very, it's very hard to see something using advanced statistics that you can't reveal using an ordinary crosstab. So I, I keep things on, on a level that my clients can understand them um, and, and I don't try to, and, and that makes it far more transparent. They don't have to trust me, here are the numbers right there. Uh, I think finally, um, um, I think uh, you have, a, I, I don't know, I think you have a very keen interest in singing and I think you have also done very well in Scrabble <laughs> as well. Uh, could you maybe tell us a little bit about your interest in these activities? Well, I, I've, I uh, didn't get into the singing game until late in life. I'd always wanted to be a singer and every I don't have that great a voice, but I joined an auditioned choir, the Des Moines Choral Society, and um, kind of found a place of um, hmm, uh, where that feeds my soul. So it's a place where everybody in the room is pushing for excellence and I don't have to be in charge that I, we have a, a conductor who, who I know well, he's been with us for 15 years now and can trust that he's moving us in the right direction and in the right way. I'm currently on hiatus and I might've, I might've had my tenure come to an end. We'll see COVID was not good to, to singers being in a room with people, you know, expelling aerosol aerosolized particulate that's not where you wanted to be during covid and my scrabble game is rusty i will say but the des moines scrabble club is a great organization i was so happy to have found it because very competitive but everybody gets along and loves the game and so you don't have people throwing fits and and 
carrying on or accusing people of cheating because that wouldn't be fun. And this this is a club that's meant for fun. And I managed to get myself into perhaps the only tournament where I could win the gold medal. <laughs> so I thought, well, maybe I should retire. <laughs> Just we'll end on a high note. Um, on that note, uh, Anne Seltzer, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, it was very it was very nice to have you. It's been my pleasure, Ryan. Thank you.